Romans chapter 8, verses 26 to 30. This is the word of the Lord. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Uh, God, we, uh, 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 we, we thank you for Romans chapter 8. And uh, we thank you for all the promises that it holds. God, you are a God who speaks. And uh, you speak through your word and your spirit. And we ask, God, that you'd speak to, to us today. Uh, and we pray, God, if there is uh, any kind of distance between our faith and believing and trusting in uh, what your word says and the promises and, and seeing the beauty of it, that your spirit would help us uh, bridge that gap, that we would, you would give us the gift of faith so that we can trust in who you are, that even in the worst circumstances, we might know that you are a God who loves us, that you are a God who is supremely wise, you, you are a God who is in control of all things, uh, but at the same time, uh, that we have a God who, uh, uh, in the person of the Holy Spirit, who can groan, uh, the groans of, of the pain of uh, this created world that has been marred uh, by sin and death. And uh, so we pray, God, that the Spirit would illuminate our eyes and uh, help us to believe even more and open our eyes to see the beauty of your word. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Uh, if you're joining us for the first time or if you haven't been here for a while, one of the things that we are doing uh, is we are focusing on the person of the Holy Spirit. And uh, I, I thought we would look at Romans 8 because Romans 8, you know, a lot of it is actually about the love of God, but if you read it again and if you read it carefully, a lot of it is actually about the Holy Spirit and what the Holy Spirit does. And uh, a lot of the things that it says is it says the Spirit, the Holy Spirit dwells within us. The same Spirit that raised Jesus from the dead dwells within us. The Holy Spirit is the one who leads us to put to death the sinful deeds of the body. And the Holy Spirit bears witness to the fact that we are children of God. So the Holy Spirit does a lot of things, and his ministry does a lot of things to us. And today what we're going to look at is the uh, ministry of the Holy Spirit as he intercedes on our behalf. Now, a couple of weeks, I didn't preach last week, but two weeks ago, uh, we were looking at the passage before this, and we, were talk we started talking about suffering because that passage is about suffering. And I think there's like a parallel passage in, in one of Paul's letters in 2 Corinthians 4 where Paul also talks about suffering, and there he says this. He says, Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. I, I think Romans 8 is saying something similar and kind of giving a similar framework where in verse 18, Paul says, For I consider that the sufferings of the present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. And so what he does is he compares the sufferings of this world to the experience of childbirth. And uh, 
basically all, all he is saying this you know this present life is going to be filled with pain this present life is going to be filled with agony but eventually something wonderful is going to be birthed in the new creation and it's going to be glorious it's going to be wonderful it's going to be beautiful and that is where christian hope is focused upon and so when you compare the suffering that you go through in this life and in this world uh, you want to do it with one eye towards eternity, towards the future, because uh, this suffering is but a momentary affliction compared to the glory that awaits us. That's, that's a basic framework of what Paul is saying as he thinks about suffering. Now, I've, uh, these days I've been thinking a lot about uh, people, uh, both in this church and outside this church, because I think people are going experiencing some hardship. Uh, some of that hardship is uh, related to health. Some of that, some of that hardship is uh, related to like future things and decisions. Some of that hardship is relational. Some of that hardship is you know, just personal emotional things or spiritual things. Uh, hardship usually uh, bears what anxiety, frustration, confusion. A whole range of emotions come out when we go through various suffering and various hardship. And I think one of the great encouragements of uh, the Bible and of this passage is it says this, that the Holy Spirit helps us in our weakness. The Holy Spirit helps us during those times. Now, we don't live in a culture that is particularly good at uh, preparing us to suffer well. And, of course, this is something anthropologists and people who study cultures would say about our culture. And in comparison to other cultures, they would say we live in a culture that actually doesn't prepare us to suffer well. Uh, if anything, we live in a culture that's filled with distractions. And uh, the remedy or the uh, antidote towards hard things is probably to distract ourselves. Uh, I've mentioned this uh, story or this uh, theologian many times, but there's this uh, theologian, philosopher, mathematician named Pascal. And I think one of the most insightful things he says in his uh, pensees is he, he asks the question, why do kings need court gestures? Especially when, if you think about it, kings have everything. They have the, all the wealth in the world. They have access to anything they want. Why do they need this like silly little man in a little hat, uh, you know, trying to make jokes and trying to make the king laugh? And uh, I think Pascal is basically reflecting and thinking about uh, the purpose of entertainment, right? Uh, the theology of entertainment. And his answer, or the conclusion that Pascal comes to is, kings need court gestures in order to avoid thinking about their own mortality, in order to think about their own death. Now, some of us, maybe we go through stages in life, and uh, there are certain things that remind us, oh, I'm getting older, or oh, death might be coming soon. Whether, uh, I, I don't know, some of us have probably had people our age uh, have health issues or even pass away, or maybe... Um, I don't know, we have like mid midlife crisis or whatever it is. It's like there's something that reminds, or we lose our hair or our hair turns white. It's like, oh, we are getting older. And I think those are instances uh, that remind us of our own mortality and it can shake us. And so, you know, all people go through those kinds of things, including kings. And Pascal says uh, kings get court gestures to kind of uh, make them not think about those kinds of bad things. Now, I read an article a while ago, and it was talking about how during the financial crisis that took place, um, box office attendance at movies increased by 16%. And you would think when tons of people were getting laid off at that time, uh, I guess you would think that maybe they would try to save money and maybe not go to the movie theater, but the opposite happens. The movie industry did really well during an economic downturn. And uh, 
probably because when you're going through something hard, you need a distraction. There's a comedian that once said, uh, smartphones have taken away our ability to be bored. And boredom is important because boredom is when you start to think about the deeper things of life, including your own mortality. And today, we have so much access to so much entertainment because of our technology that it has made entertainment so easy to consume. And therefore, whenever uh, we go through something hard, uh, it's, it's actually really easy to try to distract ourselves through entertainment. Think about this. In Pascal's day, the wealthiest, most powerful person, the king, would have to hire an actual human being, a court gesture, to entertain him. And I'm sure that court gesture is not 24-7 entertainment. That court gesture probably needs to eat meals, go to sleep, take some breaks. We, by contrast, can consume endless amounts of entertainment, and we can do it in an instant. And so there's a lot of factors that go in in terms of when we're going through suffering or when we're going through something hard, uh, it is actually very easy to avoid confronting those hard things, especially as it pertains to um, our own mortality, and we can easily distract ourselves. The thing about the Bible is the Bible doesn't avoid the reality of suffering. The Bible doesn't avoid the topic of suffering. A lot of the Bible is actually about suffering, and I know there are certain questions about suffering that we won't get answers to in the Bible, such as why would God allow certain bad things to happen to certain, ba- uh, certain people? Uh, those kinds of questions I don't think we have uh, real concrete answers to, but still, the Bible doesn't shy away from the reality and the pain and the agony of suffering. If, if anything, it actually expects us to suffer because of the reality of sin. Sin has broken the world. That's part of what Paul means when he says creation was subjected to futility and creation is in bondage to corruption. Death is not natural and death is not supposed to be something that we are okay with, but death is a reminder that something is broken, that something is not right in this world. But death is also not the end of the story in the biblical narrative because God always had this plan. And his plan is always to redeem, to resurrect, and to recreate this broken world into something new, into something better, into something glorious. And the climax of that plan is carried out when Jesus, the Son of God, comes into this world to identify with the suffering of this world, only to die upon a cross. And so even though we don't know why God would allow some of the bad things that happen to us to happen to us, uh, we can at least say it's, God's not ambivalent to it. Because if God were ambivalent to it, he wouldn't have sent Jesus. But God cared so much about our suffering that he gave up that which is most precious to him in order to end suffering once and for all in the new heaven and the new earth. Now, a couple weeks ago, I said, you know, if, uh, if a small child is hurt or if a small child is scared, uh, what they probably need most in that moment is assurance um, that everything is going to be okay. They don't need an explanation. They don't need you to explain why that bad thing happened. But in that moment, they just need to know, hey, everything's going to be okay. Uh, One of my favorite things to do with my oldest daughter is to build Legos. And, uh, you know, sometimes we would spend, we would buy this Lego set, and then we would spend days following the instructions and building whatever we're supposed to build. I also have a, a second daughter who's a toddler who breaks everything that she touches. And so uh, after, you know, for, uh, for a five-year-old child, after spending that much time and that much effort building Legos, and then all of a sudden in one fell swoop, right, the other child <laughs> breaks it down. 
uh, it's upsetting, right? It's like all that work that I did, oh no, it's broken, and my oldest child would get upset. And, you know, I could say something like this. Uh, I could say, you know, the reason your Legos broke is, look, you left it out in the open for her to break. Uh, I could have said, you know, I could have moved it for you, but you would never develop your own sense of responsibility for your things. Or I could have said, you know, I think you get too attached to your things, and it, once in a while, it's good to experience losing some of these things so you don't love your Legos too much, right? Those are all explanations, and those are all like, uh, oh, there could be a, a higher plan in those moments, but she doesn't care about any of that, right? In that moment, what does she want to know? Everything is going to be okay. She needs assurance. She wants to hear, hey, don't worry, it's broken now, but we can rebuild it, or I can rebuild it and make it just the way it was before, and uh, the analogy breaks down because what God says is not he will recreate the world just the way it was before, but he will make it even better and more glorious. And Romans 8 is all about that assurance. It is all about God saying everything is going to be okay. And Paul is giving that assurance when he talks about how God is going to recreate the world into something much more glorious. Now, verses 28 to 30 I think is one of uh, the greatest passages in terms of giving us that assurance even in the face of hardship because one of the things it tells us is this. For those who love God, all things, right, good things, bad things, all things work together for good. Now that is not saying this. If you love God, then your life will be easy, that your life will go according to your plan, that life will be comfortable, that you will never suffer. That is not the good that this passage is talking about, but basically it's affirming this. It's saying everything that happens falls under the sovereignty of God, under his plan, under his purpose, and it is a good plan and it is a good purpose for those who love him. Starting in verse 29, you have this chain and it starts out, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined. Those he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified. Those whom he justified, he also glorified. What do these statements tell us? The end of the Christian life is something that the Bible calls glorification, which is resurrection, which is new heaven, which is new earth, which is life without pain, life without death, life without sin. God is orchestrating all things towards that ends and towards that plan, and that is the good through which and by which all people who have put their faith in Christ look forward to. And if you think about it, as much as we're control freaks and we want to be in, you know, in control of our own lives, what if the execution of that plan were really left to us? There would be no assurance at all, right? If it were up to us, how could we ever be sure that our faith and our salvation were ever secure? We would probably be a nervous wreck most of our lives. But if it depends on a perfect God who loves us, then we can really have assurance. Because you see where that that chain ends. It ends with being glorified. We know that that is the end because God is the one who is in charge, because God is the one who has the plan. God is the one who executes that plan, and that is the reason why there's assurance for those of you who are believers. Okay, those are some high, lofty statements, right? True statements, statements that we have to know, statements that we have to believe, statements that give us a, a big picture framework about our suffering, but sometimes when you are in the midst of suffering and something hard, that cosmic framework, I think, can feel like, uh, you know, very distant, right? 
Maybe something is like, okay, I know that's true. I know that's something that will happen. But what about now? I, I feel pain now. I feel that suffering now. What's going to help me now? And I think Paul also gives us insight when he talks about what the Holy Spirit does for us now. Uh, starting in verse 26, he says, Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. How? How does the Spirit help us? For we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. The reason why I say this, is, uh, this helps us now, this kind of talks about the ground level of what happens in suffering, right? We know the bigger picture of God and what God wants our good and that eventually things will lead to our glorification. But even in the details of life, even in the pain and the agony that we face in life, there is a present Holy Spirit who intercedes on our behalf, who actually groans with us these pains of agony. You ever think about um, when you're going through suffering, have you ever thought about how, how are you supposed to pray, right? I don't know if you've ever thought about those things. Uh, what, is it, what does it mean uh, now? What is the Spirit doing now when my health is failing? When I've lost my job? Uh, when my parent or my child is sick and in the hospital? What does it mean if I've lost my business or my freedom because uh, I live in a country where uh, there's persecution and I've been arrested for my faith? What does it mean if I've been part of a family or in part of a marriage where I've been oppressed or abused? You know, suffering, I think, is powerful because what it does is it makes us lose our bearings a little bit. It's like kind of like being in a boat in this harsh storm without an anchor, and we just kind of feel like we're, right, being tossed by the waves. And if you are going through a s suffering, um, what is the, the thing that is going to anchor you into the ground in the midst of that? I think it's, uh, it's God himself, triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But I want to focus on the third person, the Holy Spirit, what the Holy Spirit does. He is there. He is there with us, helping us and interceding for us on our behalf. He is kind of like that anchor that to make sure that we stay tethered in the midst of that suffering. And so, um, you know, when you're going through that suffering, like I said, how do you, how do you pray, right? Someone might say, you're going through something hard, let me pray for you, or uh, encourage you, hey, you should come to God in prayer. But have you ever gone through something so hard that you're not, you're not really sure how to pray or what to pray? One of the reasons why we don't know what to pray is we, we don't know what God wants. We don't know what God is using this for. Uh, we don't know what God's plan is, and I think our suffering can bring up a lot of questions, right? Like, um, where's our assurance from? How, how are we supposed to pray? What are we even supposed to pray for? Who's going to help me in this time? And Paul's answer here is this, the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is there to help you. Part of the assurance of our prayers is not the fact that we pray the right thing all the time, but part of the assurance comes from the fact that the Holy Spirit is also praying for us and interceding for us. The same Spirit that knows the plan of God. Now, uh, when it comes to suffering and death, um, the Puritans are actually really helpful. Uh, you know, I said before, our culture doesn't adequately prepare us to think about suffering and death. You know what the Puritans believed the primary role of a pastor was, a minister? You know what my primary job is, according to the Puritans? It's to prepare the congregation to die well. That's what they believed, right? 
Now they live in a society where people are dying all the time. Life expectancy was much shorter. Even uh, having kids, child expectancy, life expectancy was much shorter. Uh, in some cultures, when a child turns one, it's a big celebration. Uh, one of the reasons why is because a lot of children would die before the age of one. Today we have a lot of medical technology, and so that's probably more of a rarity for us. But in those times, that was a, a common thing. So when you're experiencing those kinds of things a lot in a society, you can't help but to think about death all the time. And so the Puritans, they wrote a lot about death. They wrote a lot about suffering. Now, there was this uh, very gifted preacher named John Bunyan. I don't know if you've ever heard of him. Uh, but he was a very gifted preacher, and he wasn't actually formally educated in any way. He didn't go to any kind of theology school or Bible school or anything like that, but he just had this wonderful gift of preaching. In fact, there's this uh, really educated, knowledgeable, brilliant theologian named John Owen, who I've mentioned in the past, and he even he would say, I want to go hear John Bunyan preach. He would say, if I could possess this person's abilities for preaching, I would willingly relinquish all my learning. That's how much of a gifted preacher John Bunyan was. Now, they were uh, doing ministry in England, and if you know anything about the history of England, uh, the state and the church were tied. So if the, the church and the state created a law, uh, violating that law, you would be you know, arrested by the state. So the church said, if you want to preach in England, you have to be ordained by the Anglican bishop. And uh, you know, John Bunyan wasn't ordained by an Anglican bishop, but he said, I still have to preach. I still have to preach God's word. I still have to preach the gospel. So he preached. You know what happened? He broke the law. There was a warrant out for his arrest. He got arrested. They said, we'll let you go if you stop preaching. And John Bunyan said, no, I can't do that. I can't give up preaching. He spent 12 years in prison, right? 12 years. He had a wife and four children. He spent 12, spent 12 years in prison because he didn't refuse to give up preaching. Now, I imagine he had to struggle with that decision about whether to continue to preach or not uh, and whether to go to prison or not. Why? Because he had responsibility also to his family. Uh, is he supposed to keep preaching? Is he supposed to stop preaching so that he can be there for his family? Uh, what, what does God want him to do, right? So I imagine he's probably wrestling with God's will in that moment. Uh, I'm giving that story to give some context to something that he wrote about 20 years after his imprisonment called Advice to Sufferers. And it's like this little book, and he's writing it to people who are suffering. And uh, a lot of what he talks about is, look, God is sovereign. God has a plan. And God is in control. And he grows us and he matures us through our suffering. Suffering is something that makes the hope of the resurrection sweeter to anticipate. And then he has a section in there where he anticipates some of the objections that I'm sure he raised himself. And one of those objections goes like this. Uh, but may we not flee in a time of persecution. You are saying or you are pressing upon us that persecution is ordered and managed by God and that makes us afraid to flee. In other words, what that objection is saying is if, look, if this suffering or this persecution is according to God's design, does that mean that you always have to just receive the suffering? Uh, does that mean that you can never flee from suffering? And his response is this. He says, there's basically no rules to this to determine what you should do in that moment. And you look at all the biblical examples and Moses fled, but Moses also stood. David fled, but David also stood. Jeremiah fled, but Jeremiah also stood. Jesus withdrew at times, but Jesus also stood. There were times where Paul fled. There's also a time where Paul stood. 
And so he said, look, there's actually no hard rules in terms of uh, knowing what you should do because at the end of the day, we don't know what God's will is for us. And so he gives some side example. He says, basically, don't be driven by fear and go along with your conviction and what you think God wants you to do. But the basic answer is this. I don't know, right? I don't know. And some people don't like that answer of, I don't know. But I like that answer because I think that's a genuine answer and a true answer. Look, if you are, if you are back in those days and you're praying for John Bunyan and what he's going through, and if you're trying to pray for his family, what do you pray? Do you pray, God, give John Bunyan the strength to endure his imprisonment? Do you pray that John Bunyan would get released from prison? Do you pray that John Bunyan is able to let go of his ministry so that he can be home with his family? Do you pray that God uses John Bunyan's imprisonment to bear testimony to the gospel? What do you pray? What is God up to? And I think the answer is we, we don't know. Let me give you an example that might be more applicable to folks here. Uh, if you're having a hard time uh, in life, if you're having a hard time at this church, and maybe you're thinking about leaving, or if you're thinking about leaving New York City and moving somewhere else, how do you pray for that person? Do you pray, God, give this person enough strength to persevere whatever they're struggling with and whatever they're going through and to overcome? Do you pray, God, give this person some clarity of vision in terms of where you are calling them or what you want them to do? Uh, what if somebody's having a hard time in marriage because uh, their spouse is oppressive or their spouse is uh, abusive? Do you pray, God, end this marriage? Do you pray, uh, God, give this person uh, strength to endure and bear witness to the gospel for God? Right? What, what do you pray? I think at the end, we just don't know. Right? We don't know what God is doing. We don't know how he's going to use our hardship. And that could, that could paralyze us in terms of our prayer if we don't know how to pray. But you know why it doesn't paralyze us? You know why there is encouragement even in our inability to pray according to God's will? Because the Spirit is always interceding on our behalf. And the Spirit knows exactly the right thing to pray on our behalf because the Spirit knows the will and the plan of God. And if anything, I think that can make us even bolder in our prayers because the efficacy of our prayers, the power of our prayers, is not contingent upon whether we get it right because there's, there's this backup, there's a spirit that's always praying on our behalf. And therefore, we can be bold in our prayers, knowing that our prayers are not answered based on uh, whether we know the mind of God or not. So maybe you ask, okay, then what's the point of praying at all if the spirit is always interceding on our behalf? And I, I think maybe that question presumes that the primary reason why we pray is for the sake of petition, to ask God for things. But the primary reason why we pray is actually for communion. That's how we connect with God. That's how we have a relationship with God. It's a little bit like saying this. Um, you know, a child may ask their parent, can you do this for me? Can you buy this for me? Can you get this for me? And the parent may say no, because what you want, what you're asking for is not good for you. Does it mean that the child should then stop completely communicating with the parent? Of course not. It, does it mean that the child should even stop asking the parent for things and stop petitioning? course not. But if anything, the child should feel all the more secure in their petitions, knowing that 
their parent will ultimately do that which is good for them according to a good plan. I think likewise, we can be confident in our prayers, right? Even if somebody's going through hardship, just be confident. Say, God, heal them, cast out this hardship. Uh, Maybe that's not in the falling in line with the will of God, but I think we can confidently pray that and maybe God will answer those prayers. But if God has some other plan according to his great wisdom, then we submit to that plan, but we say, we pray according to what we feel and what we believe in that moment with great power, great boldness, and great assurance because also the Spirit is interceding perfectly on our behalf. Not only this, but get this, the Holy Spirit intercedes for us with groanings. Think about groanings. Now that word groaning is an interesting word. It was also used in verse 22 when Paul talks about how all of creation is groaning together in the pains of childbirth. Uh, I think it's a word that describes this intense kind of agony or pain. Uh, have you ever you know, been in a position where you're in a lot of pain or have you ever seen somebody in a position where they're in a lot of pain and uh, maybe they can't articulate their pain in words but it's usually accompanied by what? Groanings. Uh, uh, uh. And you, you kind of, if, you, if you're seeing that, it's like one of the most helpless things and helpless feelings of seeing somebody in that much pain. If you really love that person, maybe you say something like this, I, I wish I could be able to, to take that groaning or take that pain away from them. Or at the very least, I wish I could uh, connect with them through their pain and maybe experience that groaning so that they don't feel so alone, so that they know somebody knows exactly what that pain feels like and what they're growing, going through. It's remarkable. Do you see what the Spirit does here? He intercedes for us with groanings that are too deep for words. In one sense, what he is doing is he is connecting us through our groanings so that he might intercede for us with his groanings, not from a place of distance, not from a place of, I have no idea what this person is going through, but from a place of deep intimacy. Remember, he indwells us. He can experience and feel the groanings that we feel in our suffering and in our pain. And it's not just the Holy Spirit, but that's, that's essentially what Jesus Christ does. You know, there's a place in Mark 7 where, you know, Jesus, he is healing a man who is deaf and has a speech impediment. And uh, the English translation says, Jesus, he looks up to heaven and he sighs and then he heals this person. But, you know, in the Greek, the root of that word is actually the same word here that we see groanings. Right? So Jesus looks up to heaven and he, he actually groans. Why? I think he is groaning for the very same reason that the Spirit groans here. Jesus is feeling or empathizing with our pain. And that's what, that's what Christmas is all about. This is not a Christmas message, but let me throw Christmas in there. Jesus entered into the world to experience the pain and the suffering that we experience. He entered the world in order to groan with us. And he sends a Spirit. He sends the Holy Spirit to come and dwell in within us to also groan with us and experience and share our groanings in our suffering. And through those groanings, he goes before the Father and he lifts up these perfect prayers of petition that are according to the perfect plan of God that will ultimately conclude and lead to our ultimate good. And so this, uh, this passage, what Paul is saying is, you know, in our suffering, we have We have two things. We have this big picture of where all of life is leading in Christ through the power of the Spirit in the new creation. But on the ground level, we don't have a God who is distant. We have a God who can empathize in every aspect with what we are going through. Take that empathy 
take those groanings and pray on our behalf. When we feel knocked down, right, not only do we not know what to pray sometimes, but sometimes we don't even feel like praying. What great assurance it is to know that the Holy Spirit intercedes on our behalf during those times, that he helps us in our weakness, that he helps us in our pain, that he helps us in our struggle. Friends, if you are going through suffering, my guess is you probably feel alone. That's probably one of the biggest pains of going through suffering. Nobody knows, nobody really knows what you're going through. The great encouragement of this text is God does. God knows. The Spirit knows. The Spirit groans. And the Spirit helps us in our time of need and intercedes for us. Let's pray.